I'm so excited it's Hanukkah, actually. I, <laughs> I almost... I almost replaced today's share with a Hanukkah share. And I decided, no, I won't, won't do that. <laughs> no, but I might segue to it, so we'll see how we do. It depends a little on the timing, or maybe we'll do some of it. We've covered some of these issues before, so we might be able to do it more compactly by not having to start from the beginning. Okay. We were um, finishing up some ideas on Vesamtem Estevorai Eile Alevavchem Ve'alnavshechem. You shall place these words of mine upon your hearts and upon your souls. Um, I am going to just close that door. Okay, so there's, um, we, we have this question still about, and I think this is maybe, had we started talking about this question, which is how do you put something on your soul? On your heart, we said, is a, a common phrase, take it to heart, but how do you put it on your soul? So Rav Schwab had said, al nafshechem is lashon ratzon, desire and willingness. And we, mentioned, we talked about that. And we, I think, finished with this other statement from Rav Schwab, um, by placing it on our soul is a deep longing of the heart. When we talk about the nefesh, it's kind of associated with taiva, because that's the physical body, the nefesh, or the physical spirit that animates our body. So it's associated more with taiva. So it's, it's a taiva for being close to God, a taiva for mitzvos, a taiva for Yeshua, for long, like he said, the longing for Yeshua, for really wanting it. And I think I went on a little bit of a rant there, and that was where we ended. Okay. So now I want to, there's a statement here from Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And I think that we can use this to wrap around to a different thing we heard from Rav Schwab, which rounds out that idea of the nefesh, the ratzon, taking it to heart and taking it to soul, taking it to passion, taking it to desire. Um, so he says in the Gemara in Brachos, teaches us, place these words on your heart and on your soul. That's referring to tefillin. And we can kind of see that by the fact that the verse continues and tie them as a sign on your hands and as to fill in between your eyes, kind of matching up, right? So, so the, it's like in parallel. On your heart, that's the tefillin of the hand. And on your soul, that's the tefillin on your head. And we, we talked about that idea in the first paragraph of Shema. And here, it's very specific because it's running in parallel. You have the two followed by the two in the same pasuk. And you can see that, therefore, tying it onto your arm corresponds to the heart. And we understand that, right? We say, well, that's because when the hand is down, when it's placed on the bicep, and then the hand is resting down, so at one time you're tying the arm. So that shows the sort of restraint of our actions. And it leans against the heart when the hand is down. And so that's the leaning against the heart, which would control the actions. He says, but it is nonetheless difficult to understand why you would call the tefillin of the head as being on your soul mm -hmm. more than any other part of you. 
which is all animated by the soul. So he says the reason perhaps is that the tefillin of the head, in the same way that the tefillin of the arm rests against the heart, the tefillin of the head are resting against your brain. Now that's sort of so obvious to the point where perhaps that's what we thought anyway. When we thought about the head, we didn't, weren't really thinking about the skull or the face. We were probably thinking about the brain. And he says the nefesh primarily resides in the brain. And he gives a reference to the Rambam. As the tour says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu commanded us to put the four parshios that have the Yichud Shemo, the unification of God's name, and Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim on our arms, Keneged the heart, and on our heads, Keneged the brain, the Moach. And the Shulchan Aruch says something similar. So what I wanted to, I wanted to take from this, but I wanted to add another point, which is way back at the beginning of Shema. Rav Schwab told us that the significance of the head because right, the head corresponds to the whole Kriyashma as a unit. It was the Seichel. It corresponds to Bechira, to free will. You remember that? It's like a really long time ago. It's like a really long time ago. Like maybe almost a year, I think, since we started Shema. But he said then that this is the crowning glory of man. Actually, we learned about this also in Oter Yisrael Vesifara, which is a really, really, really long time ago in Brachos. The idea that the tefillin on the head, or a woman's hair covering, are the crowning glory of a Jew, and the crowning glory of mankind, because it represents a, a utilization and dedication of our free will to God's will. Because in our head is our brain, and our brain is where we make our choices, our decisions. So it seems to me that we can take that which we learned at the beginning of Shema about the head in general and the mind in general and sort of add that together, take that knowledge and have it in mind when we understand these quotes from the tour, from the Shulchan Aruch that Rav Chaim Kanievsky is bringing and say, ah, so that's the piece that brings together that the mind, that Al-Naf is Ratzon, is will, Right? This is what we will, meaning when I choose something, that is how I express, that's Bechira, that's free will. When I use my will to make a decision, to, or to make a decision to submit to God's decision, this is the dedication of my will, and that happens in the head. That free choice, that Bechira, that the Ratzon is in the head. I think that, that taking that which we knew before helps us connect to what we just learned now. Okay. In the Sefer Ha'aras HaTfilah, which I did not label, and I will do that now, because in a few years from now, I'm not going to know what source that was. For now, I can recognize the print. <laughs> he quotes the Rashi. He starts by quoting the Rashi, which we learned. Even after you are exiled, you should be outstanding. You should stand out with mitzvos, 
put on tefillin, place mezuzos, we spent some time on that, in order that they should not seem new to you when you return. And this is, as the verse says, Hatsivi lach tziunim, set up for yourself way markers. And it seems from these words that these verses are instructions how to behave in Gullus. Remember we said the Ibn Ezra took it a little differently. The Ibn Ezra said, no, this is instructions how to avoid getting into Gullus. Therefore, keep these words upon your head and upon your heart and don't forget them so this won't have to happen. But that the, the way that Rashi takes it and, and most of the other Rishonim seem to take it is, now this is a pattern, meaning you start, you're in Eretz Yisrael, hello, and then you've moved you've been taken out of Eretz Yisrael into Gullus, and here's how you get back. So that would mean that this instruction of is actually instructions of how you should behave while you are in Gullus. Good morning. Good morning. Okay. When the Jewish people are exiled from their land, they lose the mitzvot that depend upon the land. There's a lot of things that go into you will be lost from the land. You'll be lost from the land is more than just you had to move. Even though that by itself is a tremendous loss, there's so much more that's being lost. You're losing the mitzvot that depend on the land. You're losing the avoda in the Beis HaMikdash. There's so much that gets lost with the process of being lost from the land. So if you've lost mitzvot, and we've talked about it before, a mitzvah is a gift. A mitzvah is an opportunity to draw closer to Hashem. I just heard Rabbi Tat say on a, on a recorded shir yesterday or the day before, he said, the word mitzvah, the, the root sav, means a bond. It doesn't mean a command. It means bond, like a tzevet is a staff or a crew. Okay, and he, there's other examples of this. So a mitzvah is, a, we, we've seen over and over again that a mitzvah is a gift. A mitzvah is an opportunity to come close to Hashem. And it's generally given as a reward we don't understand a mitzvah as ever being a punishment. What are our main tools to draw close to Hashem, mitzvos, and especially korbanos, which are literally draw nearers? And what happens? We're lost from the land, and we lose a huge number of mitzvos, and we lose the Beis HaMikdash and the avod of the Beis HaMikdash, which is the korbanos. How on earth will we be able to rehabilitate the spiritual destruction within us? That's a punishment. That's a punishment. To be in a situation where we lose the tools that we need to be able to draw close to Hashem, that, that's, that is a bad situation. This stands in such contrast, you know, when we've talked about Adam and Chava, in, in Gan Eden and receiving mitzvos after the sin. And what an incredible gift that is. This is kind of the flip side of that, which is losing it. But, but the loss is so much more compounded because it's not just a loss 
because of what we've done wrong, now what we lose is our potential of coming back. We're saying Vavadat Mehera is losing also the mitzvah satzlus, but Aretz and losing the avodas hamishpeh So then, what? How do you rehabilitate? Whatever damage you've done through our sins, how how do we do tshuva from it? How will we ever draw close? Our hearts have been necherav, like destroyed. That's the word for necherav. It's like what we use, you know, like on Tishabot, like the Besamikdash is necherav. Demolished. Our hearts are demolished through the power of pitui leiv, right? Guard yourself, pen yifte levavchem, lest your heart be swayed, convinced, open to irrational logic. That's what took us off the path. So it must be that these instructions for how to behave in Gullus provide the solution for how to rebuild yourself back. And the instructions are, v'samtem es Now, you see that it correlates because we started in a state of serving God with all your hearts and all your souls. And here it's v'samtem es so you can see that there is a correspondence, that it is a cure to get us back to that got messed up. So Chazal teach us, and this is something that really comes up in the third paragraph of Shema especially, that the eyes and the heart lead us into sin when they work sort of together by that. I in Roa, the eye sees, lave homemade, the heart desires. And then whatever tools you use to do it. But it starts with the eyes see something, and all of a sudden, you want it. I mean, this is, there's an entire industry of advertising that's based on the principle that if people see it, right, don't bother with words too much, give them the image, people will want it and crave it and desire it. Therefore, so when you want to rebuild a heart and get it back, and now you've lost the main tools to do it, so what do you have? Which is the zone. Now you have to, what you've got to do is take these words and physically put them on your heart and on your head between your eyes. Put it there between your eyes and on your heart. And through this, you will come to be able to do the mitzvos practically. Instead of your heart and your eyes dragging you off to do the, the practical sin, now your eyes and your heart will lead you, because what, you know, like, what do you see? You go like this, you look up, <laughs> you see the words of Torah. What do you see against your heart? You feel the words of Torah. And this will lead you to Ukshartemotam, tie them onto your heart, right? You put them there, you affect them, then you describe more of an action, tying them onto your hands and onto your eyes. And from there, hopefully, they will not be new coming back. They'll, this will bring you back. This idea that it come, you bringing, this is the only cure to try and reverse the process that happened. But still very uh, shaky, not shaky, a question that shakes one. <laughs> the realization that 
and being evicted from the land, the loss is more than just what's lost looking backward, not having it. Mm -hmm. It's a loss also for going forward. It's how, to, how do we repair the damage we've done when the tools themselves are now taken? This control of the eyes, we actually brought this up, uh, I think, on Shabbos, right? The control of the eyes and the Mesilos Yasharim, talking about how the Chachamim, a wise, the wise people, are the eyes for us. They're the Ene Ha'eda. This is in Perak Gimel. And that, you know, our own eyes cannot always see far enough. And so we want to look to turn to people who have been there before us and who have a higher vision of it. It's both. Right? It's somebody who has been there, done that, gotten through it, so they know their way through the maze, and they also are standing on a platform. They've gotten to some higher level of vision, and so they can also see where we are and where we are in that maze and help us out by providing instructions. Vilimaditem osam. So now you can take these words, put them on your heart, put them on your soul, tie them on your arms, place them between your eyes, and teach them vilimaditem osam es benechem. It's an interesting term. Vilimaditem means, and you should teach osam, them, the words, esbenechem, to your children, ledaberbam, to speak about them. Beshivtecha beveisecha, when you're sitting in your home, uvlechtecha vaderech, and when you're walking on the way, uveshachbecha, when you lay down, uvkumecha, and when you get up. Now there's a lot of... You know, sometimes you can read words in Torah more than one way. Not, not, not according to the vowels. Sometimes it's even, even according to the vowels. But sometimes you have to take into account the way the words might read if you didn't know the vowels. Because that's another way that the words are speaking to you. The main meaning, the pshat, is according to the vowels. So, vili madetem osam, you should teach them, espenechem, to your children. That's the simple meaning of those words. However, you could see in those words, vilimadatem atem, instead of osam, because there is no vav, it's a chaser osam. So it looks the same as the word atem, you. Meaning vilimadatem atem, you yourself. Yeah? Vilimadatem atem espenechem would then mean you yourself should learn with your children. Espenechem doesn't mean to, it really means with. Okay, which helps you understand why you had to come to this second level, like so, somewhat deeper pshat. Because vilimadatem osam espenechem means you should teach them with your children. It doesn't really mean you should teach them to your children. It's a, it means you should teach them with your children. So then you can understand why you would say, ah, you can see even a hint to that in the fact that the word osam is chaser. It's, no, no, you yourself should be teaching it with your children. So what is that? What, where do we go from there? Okay, so there's a lot of different, different comments on this. All right, so one is, I'm sure there was something very interesting that I was supposed to put in there. <laughs> one is, the Gemara says, we had this principle before. I'm trying to think where we saw it before. We saw it in Ukshartam Leos Al Yadecha and Uksaftam Al Mazuzos Besachovisharecha. We saw that in the Halacha, 
a mezuzah and a tefillin, the, the text has to be written perfectly. Why? Ksiva tama, complete writing. Tam, like Yaakov ish tam, is complete. Ukshar tam. And the, the Gemara learned out from that 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 is a hint. It's, in other words, it's a place in the written Torah where you see a hint to that which is in the oral Torah. The oral Torah teaches us it has to be ksiva tama, complete writing. It has to be correct and complete and in order. Okay, so that's hinted by the fact that it's ukshar tam. You should tie them with the tam at the end. And the principle was wherever you have that tam at the end, it actually indicates a degree of completeness that needs to be involved. So the Gemara says also here on vilimadatem, which is not tum, vilimadatem, which means you, plural, shall teach, you could read it as ulamad tum, like you should teach with completeness. So what would the, what's the correspondence? Like what, how does that correlate? With a tefillin and a mezuzah, it means you write the words and you write them in order and you write them perfectly. There's no mistakes. So in teaching, it would mean that you can say it faultlessly. You teach the children to be able to say the psukim correctly, to read correctly, to go in order smoothly with the words correct. It's the same exact idea as what has to be in the written words that you writing the Torah for the mezuzahs and tefillin has to be also in the way you teach the Torah. So we get from here, you should make a pause between similar sounds, right? This, this starts to come around to the halachos of Kriyashma, which is a form of learning Torah, mm -hmm. right? Where you have these like vertical lines in the sitter that show you where to stop because there's two, the same sound at the end of one word and the beginning of the next word, so you don't want to run them together, to slur them together. So, and we, we learned about these way back when, right? Al levavecha, al levavchem, bechol levavcha, bechol levavchem, Esev besadcha va'avadatem mehera hakanaf pesil eschem me'eretz. These are the examples of the same sound ending and then starting the next word and stopping. So vilimadatem, learn them faultlessly or completely, means make sure you say every word and it's all very clear. Lidaberbam, to discuss, yeah, you don't need yours open because this is a Xerox from there. <laughs> You can fill in all the ones I'm not going to say. I do, I do select. I know. <laughs> bam. You should teach your, your children these words, bam, to talk about them. That doesn't just mean you should talk about Torah to your children. You want to educate your children and raise them to talk about Torah. I can tell you that is very hard to do if they're watching a lot of video. It's also hard to do if all their friends talk about is other things. It's hard. It's possible, but it's hard because we talk about and we're interested. First of all, we talk about what we're interested in. So that means you have to provide interesting things about Torah that is interesting to them because what's interesting to me might not be what's interesting to my kid or to that kid and not another kid or that kid at a certain age in their life. Different parts of Torah are going to be interesting. You know, when it's some age, it's stories and it's, some, it, you know, there's different things. The early... Earliest, earliest example is that from a time that a child learns to speak, you teach them to say, I've heard it said that Rav Moshe, when the grandchildren will come over, would come over, 
He would bounce them on his knees, and when they got to an age where they started making sounds, he would say over and over again with them. He'd play with them, but the whole time saying, Torah, Tziva, Lanu, Moshe, so that they will learn, that's the words they'll learn to say. This is, V'limadatem osam es b'nechem l'daber bam. There's another, there's an interesting point here, which is both mitzvah-related and also historically interesting. The mitzvah is v'limadatem osam es and we're still talking, and, and here we have an important question. Maybe, let's say the question first. <laughs> In this pasuk, at the esnachta, at the comma, we switch from the plural to the singular. Okay, this is very, very strange. And by the way, you revert back again, and you have the same thing happens in the next Pasuk. Okay, but in this verse in particular, you have a strange flip, because we've had all these explanations as to why the second paragraph is pretty much speaking plural to the community. There was a little exception of the we had to explain that. And now we have a sudden flip away. And we go, in the middle, you plural should teach your, plur- your, you plurals, children, to speak about Torah, when you singular are sitting in your home and walking on your way and lying down and getting up. So that's really most unusual to suddenly swap in the middle. So the first thing we learn from this is that it is a communal responsibility to educate the children meaning if somebody does not educate his child, the community has some degree of obligation to teach the child. But that even though the community has an obligation to teach the child, sitting in your home, walking on the way, these are individual, meaning the individual parent still has an obligation to teach their child. Even it, regardless of how of if and how well the community is taking care of its obligation, the individual parent still is obligated. So it's a dual obligation upon the individual parents of the children and also on the community. And this brings us to this interesting case. Hmm. Which is that originally we know fathers taught their children or parents taught their children and if someone was an orphan he more or less didn't get taught or the Basedin of the city was supposed to arrange because of this was supposed to arrange that he had a teacher but it seemed that there were a lot of people who didn't take their kids to get taught and they themselves were not competent to teach so it's fine if they were going to teach them yes, the homeschooling then that's fine and you could teach them in the course of living sitting in your home and walking on the way you know it didn't have to sit for eight hours over a book but you did have to learn that you talked about Torah all the time, and that's how you learned. And if somebody was an Am Haaretz, if somebody was not educated, then they were supposed to hire somebody else to do it, and it wasn't really happening. So there was a decree made by the sages that teachers should be appointed in every province, and the boys should enter schools at the age of 16 or 17, meaning now that they are old enough, then on their own, they the community should educate them. If they didn't get educated when they were little, so bring them as teenagers. Now, you could imagine <laughs> what happens when you bring teenagers just for the first time. Forget about that. You haven't even gotten them used to the idea of coming to school in their youth. But now you bring, I mean, it, it was a disaster, and it didn't work. What century was that? 
It's some, I think it's during the Second Temple period. It's definitely during the Second Temple period. Because it was Rabbi Yoshua ben Gamla who came and said that teachers of young children should be appointed in every town. Meaning the communal obligation to make a school and children should start learning at the age of six or seven. Don't wait until it's like trying to bring a bunch of wild horses into, you know, indoors and train them now when they're older. It's not going to work. Also, they're after bar mitzvah, so they've already had... Everything about it was a mess, apparently. <laughs> it was very bad. Now, um, okay. The Chafetz Chaim said, this is a great... A great little, it's a great little big book, big little book, <laughs> called The Chafetz Chaim on the Sitter. As far as I know, it's out of print. I don't think they've printed this book in many, many years. Mm. And it's just like snippets of his Divrei Torah, but put in order of the davening so that you can, okay. So he says, it says, Vilimaditem osam esbenechem. You yourself should learn with your children, and it can be read as atem, you yourself. You should teach yourselves with your sons. And what he took from the, the Musser that the Chafetz Chaim said from this is, don't rely on your children's Torah. You yourself should study Torah as well. This is an interesting point. It's a little bit different. He says it's a, a kind of an if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Right? A person, they themselves can't learn so much. They say, okay, I'll have my child educated to learn Torah, and that will be my Torah. And the truth is, there could be something to that. However, you really shouldn't rely on that. You should also learn Torah with your children. Even with meaning alongside, not necessarily that you're learning the same thing they're learning, but you also should be teaching yourself Torah. And the Chavetz Chaim told about a man who would study Mishnayis every day as an aliyah neshama for his own neshama. This is not the usual approach, right? We know that you know, the word mishnah is the same letters as the word neshama. Mm -hmm. And that's why, in particular, we say that, that people learn mishnayis as an ilui neshama for somebody, to raise up the neshama. This person was learning mishnayis for an ilui neshama for himself, which the more you think about it, the more sense it makes. It's just unexpected way of thinking about it. I mean, most people just say it'll be a merit for me. Like, you don't really say as an Eli Neshama when they're still alive. But it makes sense. So people were somewhat astonished because normally a person's sons will learn Mishnayis for them after they've actually passed away. And so he would say that he wasn't sure that his sons would study Mishnayis for his sake after he died. Maybe his kids were not so reliable about that kind of thing. Therefore, he decided that he better watch out for his own spirit in the next world. And so he learned a parak of Mishnayis every day as a tzedah l'derach, packing, packing for the journey, packing for the trip. And the Chavetz Chaim said, this is v'limadatem osam espenechem. Don't rely just on the fact that your kids will learn for you. You learn for you. Furthermore, you yourself should learn with your children. It's also the Chafetz Chaim. It says, 
the way you teach your children is by you learning with your children. Not, again, not that you have to be the one sitting with them over a Gemara, but if you're also learning, and they're also learning, that is a better example, that is a better way to teach them because they see that you're also learning. Whereas if a parent says, no, you have to learn because I have to teach you and because you're young and whatever it is, but, but the parent themselves is not setting the example of the learning, it's much less likely that the child will take the whole lesson of the learning. Always the case that children learn more by example than by, by example. admonition. Yeah. I saw, I saw such a good statement. I'm trying to think what it was. It was something about driving. It was saying, kids start learning to drive as soon as you turn their car seat to face forward. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really, really very good statement. That's when they start learning to drive. They don't always learn what you wanted them to learn from your example, but they will always learn from your example. Okay. So Rav Schwab is now commenting on this question of how we got from the plural to the singular in just one leap mm-hmm. and, and why. He says, It is an obvious... Astonishment. This whole parsha was written, well, most of this parsha was written in the plural, directed to the plural. And in this pasuk, suddenly we switch to the yachid. He says, perhaps we will apply what Rav Hirsch said in Parsha's Kedoshim. What he and it's just, it's worth saying, Heir veheir bedivrei ha-pasuk. He says the word heir twice, once with an ayin, once with an olive. Heir veheir, heir, what he aroused or inspired or awakened, and heir illuminated in a verse. Look what he showed us in this verse. It's just a beautiful way of saying it. And the pasuk is losa kifu pa'as roshchem. Do not... Uh, don't cut in a circle the corners of your hairline, right? This is called peos, pa'as. Yeah, it's a, it's a surprise, right? This is whopping topic change. Like, how did we get over to peos? Okay. Beloshon rabim. That's said in the plural. Lo takifu. You, plural, shall not, you know, cut straight or cut in a circle the corners of your head. Velo tashchis es pa'asa but, and don't destroy the corners of your beard, which is kind of the same basic mitzvah, mm-hmm. these, these corners, which are, it's not clear which are the five corners, but it's one, two, three, four, and five. Okay, that, according to one opinion. There's a little bit of difference of opinion on where the corners are. It could be these corners, these corners. Okay, but that's in Lashon Yachid. Your beard is, is Lashon Yachid. Because the payas of the head... The prohibition is the encircling, meaning evening, making it all an even circle here by the ears and like the forehead. And this is recognizable in the public. This is the public part of your head. And so it is commanded to the community as a group and as a whole. But about the beard, it's not prohibited to shave off a beard per se, even though we do find that the post recommend that a beard is a Jewish appearance 
and it's praised. But removing a beard on principle is not forbidden. It's the hashchasa. It's what's defined halachically as destroying the beard. So there are certain ways that it is forbidden to cut your beard. Right? Like there's different kinds. There's razor versus scissors. You're allowed to use scissors. You can't use a razor. You're also not allowed to use like a depiling cream, like a cream that destroys the hair follicles. It's also not allowed. Okay. Halacha lamaisa. If you have a beard, go ask, right? But <laughs> nobody sitting here does. For women, it's not called a beard, and take out your hair how you want to. Okay, but in other words, this is something that nobody who sees you can tell what you've done. The fact that you don't have a beard doesn't mean you did something else, sir. You might have cut it in a permitted way. I I think now, if we see somebody who doesn't have a beard, a firm person without a beard, our assumption is that's perfectly normal, Mm -hmm. and he has some perfectly kosher way that he doesn't have a beard. So this is in private, and therefore the warning on the prohibition is directed to the individual. Whereas if a person does or doesn't have payas, halachic payas, this is public, everyone can see whether you have it or not. So he says, let's take that way of understanding that verse and look over here about the mezuzah. Mezuzahs have to be written, kisidran uksiva lishma. How do you know if a mezuzah is kosher? Well, you can tell if all the letters are there and if they're correctly formed. But here, we're talking about like uksav tam, right, ksiva tama. Ksivatama means you wrote them in order. You started at the beginning and you wrote through to the end. What if afterward you look back and you see you made a mistake and you have to scrape off a word and rewrite it? If you don't scrape all the way back to that word and start from there and continue, it wasn't written in order. But nobody could see that. That's hidden. And the same thing goes for writing it lishma. It has to be written lishma. And there maybe even have to be certain kavanos lishma when you're writing God's name. And nobody can see it. There's like a spiritual kashros that is only visible to the sofer and not to anyone else after it's been written. And so that depends on the Yerushamayim of the person who's writing. And therefore the Torah says, he says, uchsavtam is singular. It's not atem, it's uchsavtam. The plural is the words you're writing, but it's directed to the individual. Your own house, your own, and the same thing, right? And therefore the Torah says, what it doesn't say about teaching Torah to your children, because that is something that can be publicly seen. <laughs> Either because your kid doesn't go to school <laughs> or they grow up a little and it becomes really obvious that this child knows nothing, right? One way or the other, this is something that can be seen publicly, but the parts that can't be seen publicly, you're sitting in your home. How you talk when you're on the way, how you lie down, and how you get up, and what's inside your mezuzah, this is not visible. And therefore, it's, it's a great insight, meaning there are things that are, that are hidden that are only for us to know. That's spoken to directly. 
And when it's something that is a more public uh, keeping of the mitzvah, so this is, this is something that's said in the plural. So that is actually, if we have a few more minutes. So we don't even know if our businesses were, were written correctly. You can't and see. They, you can't see. But, but so that doesn't, so it doesn't apply to you at all. It's not a it, So it's whoever's it's doing the writing. Because the Ulchatam is you should write it. Yeah. Well, it's your obligation. You're trusting somebody else and they're your Shemayim. Because you're not able yourself to do it. Okay, so this, I think leads to an interesting idea. I won't have time to do the whole thing, but I think an interesting Hanukkah idea um, that for me has been a new take on an old idea, <laughs> so to speak. Um, it is this idea of the contrast and the relationship between the inspiration on the inside that's hidden and that's individual and the inspiration on the outside, which is public and communal. And Hanukkah seems to be a time for focusing on the individual and the internal. So why do I say that? Um, not because it doesn't, because you know we have Pirsumenisa, we publicize the miracle, right? But that's where the mitzvahs of Hanukkah end. The mitzvah of Hanukkah doesn't go on to take the pub public publication, <laughs> the advertising of the miracle, and then there isn't a mitzvah about how you then go on and make that communal. That's something that is assumed to happen. But you can have Pirsume Nisa in your house. Meaning, there are halachos, and I'm not, I'm not a posek, so don't take anything from this. Just know that this idea exists. What happens if a, a man comes home very, very late? His family has, maybe they lit their menorahs already, right? I don't, I don't know if this applies for a woman as well. It could be also, you know, the husband lit and the family lit, and you came home very, very late for some reason. You had a late shift or something like that. You were busy with some other mitzvah, and you were putter from menorah, but now you come home, and it's 11 o'clock at night or it's 12 o'clock at night, and it's past the halachic definition of when people are walking around outside, which is when you're supposed to light. People should still be outside to see it. So in some situation, now if a person lives by himself, so he lights his candle, and he lights his candle, and he is publicizing to himself the miracle. But there's some situations, if you have family members, where it might be best to wake somebody up and have them come down and watch you light so that you are able to publicize it for somebody. How much publicity is that? <laughs> it's somebody in your house who already lit. But that, that can be enough. In fact, even publicizing it to yourself could be enough if necessary. So it's more that the focus of Hanukkah is from the individual until the point of announcing this out into the world. But we don't have a mitzvah that takes it from there onward. Okay. I, what I'm doing is showing how this thematically is connected to what we're just talking about. That there is sometimes you have mitzvahs and it's the inside and it goes to the outside. And, and sometimes our focus is on taking the outside and bringing it to the inside. That's very often our focus, is we take from the outside, we take outside actions, externalized actions, and our goal is to internalize them. Even when we daven, 
we start with brachos, which is the more action, right, the hands, the world outside of us looking at that, and then we move gradually more and more to the internal until we get to Shemona Esrei. We move from the hands to the heart to the mind to the soul. We go internal, and then we have an avoda to bring the internal back out. But what I kind of want to show here is that on Hanukkah, the avoda is very specifically from the inside, starting on the inside, not taking the outside and internalizing it, but actually starting on the internal and working to externalize it. This is the idea of lighting the candle, ishu veso, each person and his household, and yet bringing that to the external, to the it's pure soul. Reverse of like and Dallas, and now we have to before if he built us from the outside in. It could be. I don't know. The reason I don't know for sure, I mean, if you say so, I'll believe you, actually. <laughs> but um, the reason I wouldn't know by myself is because I see both directions happen at the base of Mikdash. And so I do, that's why I don't know. Because with our tefillah, we're modeling it. We are starting from the outside in, but then we take the inside back out again. And there's a constant two-way flow, and that's why I don't know. I'm not talking about the process of tefillah. I'm talking about this, uh, the lining of the Oh, yes, with the, with, the, with the windows that go out, and we say, and does Hashem need our light? Which Obviously not, so we're lighting and going to the outside. Yeah, okay, so that, that's interesting. You'll like, you'll like this part. So, <laughs> no, I'll tell you why. Because what I, what I did was a little research on Al-Hanisim. It's nice because it's the first day of Hanukkah, so you haven't missed too many chances yet to say Al-Hanisim. Um, and for me, Al-Hanisim, I would say, is always exciting because I associate it with Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. Not because I get so excited about what it says in Al-Hanisim. Just being honest. Yeah. I would like to be more excited about it, but after I've said it a few times, what I'm doing is remembering what God did for us, and I'm very happy about that, and that's great. But I don't... I wasn't able to take out of it what I should be doing, to a great extent. Not out of the process of reading Al-Hanisim. I understand it's Lahodos Ulahalel, and I need to work on Lahodos Ulahalel, but I didn't understand why I start with Bimei Matisya Ben Yochanan and end with Lahodos Ulahalel Shemchagadol. Right? There has to be some sort of structure or process that I'm following that helps me do it, and I didn't see it. So that's what I wanted to look on. So if we look at Al-Hanisim, we, so I, I'm trying to reorganize these ideas in my mind. So I hope you'll forgive me if they don't come out straight. <laughs> but if you put them together in your own order. Okay. What we see is a couple of things. Number one is Al-Hanisim is always put in in gratitude. So in Shemona Esrei, it's attached to the bracha of Modim Anachnu Lach before you close the blessing, right? So it's actually attached to modim. We thank you, Hashem. And in benching, it's nodelecha. It's attached within the bracha of nodelecha Hashem Okenu. We thank you, Hashem. Which is just a good way to remember it if you didn't happen to remember it. That's where it goes. It's there on purpose because it's halal vehoda'a, thanking 
lahodos ulahalo. We're giving thanks. There's a very interesting halachic question, which is this. Let's see if I can find the text of it. The question is, I really want to say it the way they said it because it was so well put. Okay. The question is this. When the Shaliach Tzibor says modim, when you're da- you daven Shrona Esrei with a minion, you daven it on your own, and then the Shaliach Tzibor says the Shrona Esrei out loud. And everyone is Yotze with the Shaliach Tzibor. To the point where if you didn't daven Shmona Esrei, the Shaliach Tzibor's davening could be for you if you have your kavana while he's saying the brachos and you say amen and you, you're listening to the meaning of the brachos, he's, he's motzi you. Mm-hmm. Now the Gemara in Sota asks a question. When the Chazin says modim, what should all the people say? That's a really weird question. It's not a name. <laughs> right, like, well, what they should say is nothing. Sit quietly and listen to the words. And you don't ask that about any other bracha. You don't say, you know, when the, when the shaliach tzibur is saying, hashiva shoftenu, what should the people say? It's obvious. People should say nothing at all. They should listen to the words and say amen after the bracha. And yet the Gemara says, when the shaliach tzibur says modim, what should all the people say? We say the other modim. But the reason we say the other modim is because the Gemara asked, what should we say? Okay, so the Gemara gives, I think, something like five different opinions, and we actually say a combination of all five. And that's why it's called modim de rabbanan, modim of the rabbis, because we say all five. Well, we don't always do that, right? We say what these different rabbis said. Rav Schwab, point, uh, he's not the only one, points out, like, what, what's, <laughs> why does the Gemara ask the question about what you should say? Not only does the Gemara ask the question what you should say, the Gemara comes to the conclusion of what you should say. Something else. Uh, the chazan's talking, and you are off talking on your own. You get up, you bow, and you, and you say a modim de Rabbanan. And it's not the same words he's saying. It's not like you're saying it along. Okay. The answer is in what the Abu Darham says, which I just had here, actually, because I saw it in Abu Darham first. <laughs> but I like the way he put the question. Like I said, I'm reorganizing. When the Shaliach Tzibor gets to the passage of Modim in Davning and bows, the congregation also gets up and speaks out a small Modim, a small gratitude, that begins also with the word modim. Because it is not the proper way of things that the servant says to his master, you are my master, 
through a shaliach. You don't send somebody else. Elakol adam tzarich lekabel befiv o malchus shemayim. Im yikabel al yedei shaliach ain't a kabbalah gemara. Sheyuchal achachish v'lo marlo shalachtiv. If you're being mekabel o malchus shemayim, you have to be mekabel o malchus shemayim. Can't send somebody else. And furthermore, with all of davening, where you're asking for what you need, you can have a shaliach. Because nobody would ever deny, if, if, if a shaliach said on your behalf, ask for things, nobody would ever say, oh, I don't want those things. You would just accept them. You'd be happy, even if you didn't have it in mind. But when it comes to gratitude, you have to think by yourself. You don't say, oh, tell him I said thank you. I mean, you could add that also, but you better pick up the phone and say thank you or send an email, say thank you, something. Go to the person, say thank you. You don't send a shaliach to say thank you on your behalf, which is interesting because if you look at this modim, it ends with al she'anachnu modim lach. The last thing we say thank you for is that we can thank you. <laughs> We're saying thank you also that we could thank you. You don't send somebody else to say thank you for you. We're grateful that we can do the thank you. That's an example. This is an example of needing to be on the inside. And we're talking about Shemona Esrei. And we're talking about a Shaliach Tzibor. This is a, a higher form of Shemona Esrei, maybe. And yet, when it comes to Modim and to the gratitude... It has to be in each individual. The community cannot do it for you. And this is where we put Al-Hanisim. And we start with Al-Hanisim. First of all, we start with Al-Hanisim, Al-Hapurkan, Al-Gvuras, Al-Chuas, Al-Melchamosha, Al-Sisa, Lavoseinu, Bayamim, Ha'em, Bazman, Hazeh. Which is, um, it kind of merges together the bracha, like we say on the candle, Sha'as Hanisim, Lavoseinu, Bayamim, Ha'em, Bazman, Hazeh with various things from various verses around Tanakh of Al-Hanisim, Purkan, Gvuros. Even when we light the candle, what do you mean, Sha'asisa lavoseinu bayamim ha'hem bazman hazeh? That sounds familiar to us, because we know that bracha. But if you know, if your starting point was halacha, before you knew any brachos, then you would know that the halacha is that when a person comes to a place where a miracle was done for all the Jewish people, like the place where we crossed the Red Sea, the Yamsuf, or the place where we crossed the Yardin, then you make a bracha thanking Hashem for the miracles, shasisa lavoseinu bamakom hazeh, the place. And then you have a question even about <laughs> the... You have a question, when Yisro comes and see, Yisro heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, he comes to Moshe and the Jewish people in the desert, and he says, Baruch Hashem asher hitzileschem, miyad mitzrayim umiyad paro. And we say, how could you say that? You could say that when you see the place. When <laughs> they cross, you know, why are you saying it when you see the people? Right? It's a question. Okay, so you have an answer, but, <laughs> but that's a question, because it's the place, not the people. And then you have a halacha. What if a person comes to a place where they themselves had a miracle happen or their parent or their teacher? Then you could also say a bracha. But if 
your parent had a miracle in that place, when I come to the place, I don't make a bracha. That's only if it was the whole Jewish people. You would make the bracha, not me. Because that's for the individual. What? Then there's another sort of exception case in the halacha. What if you see the, the lion's den from which Daniel was saved? Or you see... Or you see the furnace from which Hananiah, Mishal, and Azariah emerged alive. Then you also make a bracha, she'asanisim, I think it's latzadikim, v'makom Now this is very, now the Abu Darham says, why do you make a bracha in a place where an individual experienced a miracle? We already learned that you only say it if the individual is you or someone directly before you so that they cause the miracle to be for you too. Or you say the bracha if it's the whole Jewish people. So why do you say a bracha when you see Daniel's den? <laughs> or you see the, the furnace? Because those were individuals who were saved. So their children should say the bracha, but not everybody else. And the answer is because if a miracle happened for an individual, but it brought... A kiddush Hashem, then you make a bracha. In other words, the kiddush Hashem is a benefit to everybody. And I think through understanding that halacha, it helps us to understand what we're saying on Hanukkah as well. Okay, so what are we seeing when we are lighting the candle? And we say, We're lighting a candle, and somehow that's as good as seeing the place where the miracle happened, what I get, which I guess in this case would be like the base of Mikdash. <laughs> We're not seeing the Makoma Mikdash. We're seeing that we lit a candle, and in lighting that candle, we say, There was a miracle that happened. It happened only for individuals, but it was a Kiddush Hashem. And therefore, it's really like we're saying, it's for our fathers, Lavosenu, but it's also for Yechidim, because it wasn't everybody who saw that miracle of the candle. It wasn't, and it wasn't this complete miracle where everything was happily ever after. It was a miracle that happens to a Yachid and creates a Kiddush Hashem, and that's emphasized here. So, for example, we describe Hashem's part in fighting our war for us. Mm-hmm. And for yourself, you created a great shame, Kiddush Hashem, in your world. And when we talk about the human role, right, cleaning the base of Mikdash and lighting the candles, we say, we est- and the, the Maccabim established eight days of Hanukkah, so it is the hoda'a, it is the modim, it is the nodelecha that makes this bracha worthy. Mm-hmm. It's this taking from the individual and bringing it out to Kiddush Hashem. However many people see it is however many, that's God's side. What we're talking about on Hanukkah is the bringing out from the individual. So this has a lot of implications in how it comes out and is seen in Hanukkah. For example, 
Bimei Matisyahu ben Yochanan Kohen Gadol. It was in the days of one person, Matisyahu, the son of Yochanan the Kohen Gadol, Chashmonai, the Chashmonai, Uvanov, and his sons. You start with one person. Rav Hirsch says it, as always, in the most beautiful way. Sorry. I have various things from Rav Hirsch here. It's really a whole sheer on its own. He says, what happened on Hanukkah was the first, the very first time that Jews were faced with a choice between death of the spirit and death of the body. It says, until now, we had been threatened physically. We'd been, had spiritual threats that came from physical threats. But we never had somebody who came and said, we're perfectly willing to let you live in peace as long as you don't keep mitzvot or learn Torah. That had never happened. That is unfortunately now a very familiar scenario. But that had never happened before. This is the first, this is the index case for give up the spirituality. And then when the faithful had fallen, when the weak were beginning to falter, when all that spelt Israel seemed lost, then arose Matisyahu, the son of Yochanan, the priest, and his sons. He did not count the number of those who were like-minded. Some say it was their first, their core group was as small as 13. He had faith in the spirit of God who endows the spirit with victory over violence. Now, what Rav Hirsch wants to come to say is, what is the miracle of the oil? By the way, not mentioned in al Hanisim. Why did you need a miracle of oil? <laughs> they were pator. They didn't have to light the menorah. They didn't even have a menorah. The Beis HaMikdash was Tameh. They were Tameh. They had been killing people. The oil probably didn't have to be Tawar. Why did they need it so badly, and why did God provide it at all? And if God is going to suddenly and miraculously provide oil, then why provide one-eighth of what's required? <laughs> just, just send a case. Let them find a little case of oil cruises. Mm -hmm. And there's a set of eight in there, like we get them. <laughs> With 44 candles in the box, right? <laughs> 44. I mean, it's just equal miracle. Why is the miracle I'm going to provide one little amount of oil and make it last for eight days? Just as God watched over the security of the spirit of Israel amid the violence and rage and caused the light of Israel to be rekindled by the flaming spirit which still shone pure in the breast of one man. So did he declare by a visible symbol that in time of desolation he watches over and is the spirit of Israel. Only one cruise of oil, enough to last one day, was found still undefiled. You understand? This corresponds to the spark in the heart of one person that hasn't been touched or influenced. But lo, he who watches over God's spiritual, over Israel's spiritual light, caused it to last for eight whole days until fresh oil was prepared. This sign our ancestors grasped fully. They raised it to the celebration of the days of remembrance which they instituted in commemoration of the event. The darkened courses of Israel are lit up by this message. 
the spiritual light of Israel will never be dimmed. And even if round about you, everything becomes defiled by the oppression of the time, so long as the light remains pure within the confines of only one house or within the breast of only one man. He's translating out. This is the halacha. Ish uveso. Ner ish uveso. Just the one person. Just the one household. This is within the confines. See, if you didn't have the question, you wouldn't understand all of Rav Hirsch's answer. This is the place of the miracle. This is the place of the miracle. The place of the miracle is within the one person or within the one home. As long as the light remains pure within the confines of only one house or within the breast of only one man, you can live on joyfully amid all the wanton aberration, even die joyfully under the frenzy of a madman, for the spiritual life of Israel is saved. God watches over it and by even the light of one man rekindles it anew. It's the one. It's the individual. It's Bimei Matesyahu ben Yochanan Kohen Gadol. And from the one flame, you can light many. God can light many. He will amplify it. The miracle of Hanukkah and the avoda of Hanukkah is inside. He said the underlying motive of the festival is the spirit. It is celebrated spiritually. There's no material festive pleasure commanded. There's no su'uda of Hanukkah. It is completely focused on what the spark of inspiration, of light in the heart. It's a domestic festival within the house. The lights stand with holy purport and must not be used for any other purpose. You don't use it for anything. It's not about how it gets, it's not about getting it to the outside. It's just about making sure it's pure and complete within. Mm -hmm. This ties back to what we've been talking about the last few weeks of the idea of a Hanukkah, of a Truma, of a Korban, being from the first and the best. That the Hashmonaim wanting to have Tahor oil. Maybe you didn't need Tahor oil when everything's Tameh. No, because when it's the first time, you really, really want to get it perfect. Maybe you won't maintain it perfectly. Maybe it'll take eight days to get more and you'll have to decide to use Tameh oil the second day. But the first day, it should be perfect. That, that first spark in the one person that hasn't been contaminated, in the one cruise of oil that hasn't been contaminated, that hasn't gotten used, you sort of remind, you know, Hushim Ben Dan, right? Hitting Esav over the head because he was deaf. He, he hadn't gotten used to the idea. You know, we go out in the streets, we're so used to it now. <coughs> Trying to cultivate that, the insulation of the spark within. From there, God will take it out. He'll publicize. Well, this is where we create the Kiddush Hashem. It's the Kiddush Hashem that comes from even one individual. If it creates Kiddush Hashem, then it's something that everyone will make a bracha over. Okay. Just, I'm going to wind up here because it's a bit late. We see that message was brought in Rashi in last week's Parsha, right? That was the first one. I didn't talk about it this week. We talked about it a year or two ago, where Yaakov looks around and he sees all these alufim of Esav and he says, how could we ever succeed over them? And it's compared to a blacksmith who looks at 
the huge uh, inventory of a flax merchant. He's got camels and camels and camels loaded with all this flax. And the wise person says, one spark from your forge, and the whole thing goes up in smoke. It, it looks big and impressive, but there's nothing really there. The one spark that can wipe it all out, because that physicality just looks, by the way, it's a flax merchant, right? It's, it's all pishtan, which goes back to the Kayan and Hevel that we talked about. We, uh, Rav Tzadok, he says, the miracle of the oil, Hayarak mitzad Hashem yisbarach. Hashem brought that oil not because they really had to have the oil, but because Shahaya Chaviva Lefanov had It was beloved to him. God is reflecting back the spark of light in the person, that kind of purity of dedication, and it's reflected back as the light. And that's what Rav Hirsch describes. They recognized it. They understood this was the message. And therefore... The Achar came after this, which we've learned from Rav Hirsch, means building upon, turning away from everything we have said before and going on from there, all of the miracles God did for us. Ba'u vanecha, your children came, lidevir vesecha. Devir is the Kodesh HaKadoshim. It's called devir because it's like the word davar, speech, because this is where the creation of the world comes through this, God's word. They came to the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. And they cleared out the Heichal. That's where the menorah normally is, the menorah, the Shulchan. They purified the Mikdash. That's the building as a whole. And they lit the lights in the Chatzar. They've moved out all the four steps exactly in order, but they started on the inside. They start in the Holy of Holies and they work step by step out to the Chatzar. This is, this is the Avoda of Hanukkah. It's to start with the very inside. This is a very unusual thing, especially to see about people. It's one thing to say that, that God does it. Right? It's like they start on the, I don't know, they airdrop them through the roof, you know, like when they start on the inside. They must have come in from the outside. That wasn't the important thing. They start on the inside and they work their way out. By the way, that very inside couldn't be touched. That Yavan couldn't touch. Because the Yavan, the Gematria of Yavan is one more than the Gematria of the Heichal. So the Heichal they were able to, to ruin. They had to clear out the Heichal. They had brought Avodah into the Heichal. Which is like a shocking, I don't know, I think in my mind I always pictured it out in the Azara somewhere. It was inside. Which is why they ended up having to light candles outside. In their homemade menorah, wooden menorah. Right? But they ha the goal here, the avoda is, start on the very inside and work step by step getting it out. And from there is l'shim chahagadol, the praise of God's name. That's the publicity. But that's all. It's Hashem who took it out and made it into a big public, right? It's not, it, just like he fought our wars and fought, the, our avoda for Hanukkah is not to worry about the impression on the outside. It's to worry about who we really are, that spark on the inside. It's the importance of the individual. And it's part of modem where nobody can do it for you. It's part of modem where even the shaliyah tzivor can't. So these are, there's a lot of different things like that. It's about the hidden miracle. Not about 
the big out there miracle. It's not the crossing of the Yamsuf. It's not. It's the hidden miracle, which the Ramban says somewhere. I have a copy of the Ramban. The Ramban says at the end of Parsha's Bo, it's a Ramban we've seen before. It's that Ramban where he talks about how so many of the mitzvos are remembering Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Remember that Ramban? Because the big miracles, we have to remember them. Because min hanisim hagdolim, from remembering the big miracles, hamifursamim, that are famous, adam mode, a person is mode, the individual person is mode, benisim hanistarim, on the hidden miracles. We learn to acknowledge and recognize the hidden miracles, our, that God is the rock of our life, that he protects us that our lives are given into his hand and so are our souls. The miracles that are every day with us, those are not the public miracles. Those are not the big you know, trumpet ones. Those are the quiet, hidden ones. The wonders and the goodness that you do at all times, evening, morning, afternoon, that never ends. The big miracles are to help us appreciate the little miracle, not little, the hidden miracles, shehem yisod ha-Torah kula, which is the foundation of the entire Torah. Not the big miracles are the foundation of the entire Torah. The hidden miracles is the foundation of the entire Torah. That's the Avodah of Hanukkah. Okay, so I hope that'll put a little something into our Alhanisim. I think for me it will. And happy Hanukkah. So we'll, it will still be Hanukkah next week, right? The last day of Hanukkah. I think it will be. Yeah, it won't be lighting anymore, but it'll be Hanukkah. Mm-hmm.